passage this morning is found in Revelation chapter 1. We'll be looking at primarily verses 12 through 20, but we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. It can be found on page 1028 in the Bibles in the pew. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatria, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Let us together seek the Lord that he might give us wisdom and insight into the reading of his word. Father God, we come before you because your mercy is more, and because it is you who indeed holds us fast. And God, these words that have been given through the Apostle John so long ago are as true and needed for your church today. May we hear them, may we heed them. May you give me wisdom and insight, may you give me truth, keep me from error, Keep my voice strong. Keep me from coughing. But God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. May he guide us into all truth and may you revive us by your word this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As of today, March 1st, the year 2020 is two months complete. And what a crazy and chaotic two months it has been. I will not say this has been the most chaotic start to a year. But it certainly feels to be one of the most of more recent years. It started, if you remember, with bushfires wreaking havoc in Australia, where at least 27 million acres and nearly 500 million animals have been destroyed. Then we saw tensions between the United States and Iran escalate with the killing of a top Iranian general. At that time, many feared a potential war was imminent. And these tensions also increased feuds in and around the Persian Gulf, 
with riots starting and continuing in Iran itself. There was also the impeachment trial of our president. Whatever your feelings about the trial, I think the chaos of the moment was painstakingly clear each and every day the trial continued. The United Kingdom formally withdrew from the European Union after voting to do so back in early 2019. Future Hall of Famer Kobe Bryant died at the age of 41 in a tragic helicopter crash along with eight other people, including his teenage daughter. The coronavirus first appeared in early February and it continues to threaten countries even today. Just this past Thursday, the stock market saw its largest one-day decline in history as a result of the fears surrounding this virus. It has not been a good week if you are in the investment world. The virus is even threatening the upcoming Summer Olympics in Tokyo. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the three-month clock has started ticking to determine whether or not the Olympics will be canceled altogether. And on top of that, 2020 is an election year in our country. I don't know about you, but I personally have already had enough of the chaos of debates and ads and polls and the upcoming conventions. And I've not even made mention of the personal chaos that 2020 has already brought upon some. Death, sickness, struggle, difficulty have already touched many of you just in the past two months. January and February do not have you looking too excitingly at March and the months to follow. It is enough for all of us to wonder aloud, what is going on? What in the world is happening? And the Apostle John finds himself in a similar scenario during the time of this letter. The church at large is facing persecution likely under the Roman Emperor Domitian. The worst persecution the church would face at that time. Christians were targets. John himself has been exiled to this island Patmos as a person considered dangerous to good order. He is also likely one of, if not the last of the apostles still alive at the time of this book. Things were not looking upward for John or the church. You can almost hear John saying in this moment, what is going on? What in the world is happening? And it is into this situation that Jesus Christ graciously and powerfully reveals himself to John. He gives John a glorious revelation of himself. It will not answer all of John's questions. It will not provide an immediate solution or an alleviation to his and the church's suffering. It's not even going to give him the clearest idea of what is actually going on. But it will make clear that Jesus Christ is actively working in and through his church. He has not, he will not abandon them. And this is enough to drive away John's fear. It is enough to encourage him then to write down all that he saw so that the church throughout the ages would also be encouraged. So be encouraged this morning that Jesus Christ is with and at work in his church as she awaits his glorious return. 
The outline for this is posted in, it's listed in your bulletin. Three points. Jesus is present with his church. Jesus is perfecting his church. And Jesus will prevail through his church. All of these telling us, confirming to us that Jesus is working in and through us. And he will continue until the day he returns. We begin with Jesus is present with his church. This is how the vision that John gets starts. He says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. We know the lampstands represent the church because verse, verse 20, thankfully, tells us. There are seven to represent the fullness. These seven lampstands are the full expression of the church on earth. And lampstands are nothing new to the people of God. They're not some new technology or new, new caveat or facet. This, this is something that they'd be familiar with. There was a lampstand present early on in the tabernacle. There were ten permanently residing in the temple. And according to Leviticus 24, the lampstands were expected to burn regularly, night and day. The lampstand served the purpose of reminding Israel that the Lord, the true light, was in her midst. And they also pointed forward to the day when God would send his son into the world as the true light to save his people. He would dwell with his people forever by his spirit. They would be his temple, giving constant witness to Christ until he comes. In a subtle way, but a profound way, John is being reminded by these lampstands of the simple yet profound calling that the church has. She is to continually bear the light of Christ in this dark world. John heard Jesus teach this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Naturally, then, this begs the question, how are we as a local extension of the universal church doing as light bearers? Are we more than just geographically a, a church on a hill? Does the light of Christ shine forth from us as we patiently await his return? It can be easy to think that such light bearing is just automatic. We're going to do it. Because we are, in a lot of ways, unlike a lot of churches around us. But even that is not a guarantee. John's vision demands that we at least examine our faithfulness to the call Christ has placed on us as his bride. To bear his light in this dark world. But John's vision only starts with these lampstands. He goes on, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. There is good news even as we reflect on the call we have to witness Jesus Christ. And it is that Jesus Christ himself is right in the middle of it all. John, the picture he sees is Jesus walking and moving in and among the lampstands. He's likely touching them. He is near to each and every one of them. I am not a gardener, or at least I'm not a very good one. But while living in Pennsylvania, Bethany and I planted a garden every spring. It seems we were never as successful in ours our first year, but we consistently were able to enjoy at least some fruits of our garden. 
But one thing I learned is that you cannot be a good gardener if you are not in the garden. Weeding, pruning, and watering from the fringes simply doesn't work. The plants needed me moving in and through them almost on a daily basis. Only then could I see and could I know what it is that the plants needed most. And this is how Christ resides with his church. This is the picture that John gets. Jesus isn't off in the distance. He's not preoccupied on his throne in heaven with some other things. No, he is the Lord and shepherd of his church, intimately moving in and amongst her. He is with her. He knows what it is that she's facing. He knows her struggles. He knows her weaknesses. And as the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 will reveal, Jesus will give words of life to his church. He will promise that all she needs to endure, he has for her. And he calls her then to daily faithfulness. What great news for us as we labor on as his light-bearing witnesses here in Little Rock. Christ is in our midst. He is with us. But what great news for our brothers and sisters, particularly in places where bearing the light of Christ comes at an extremely high cost. Jesus is right there with them as their churches are being burned, as they're being arrested, as they're being put to death. He is there with them. He is near to them. This vision, in a way, confirms the promise that Jesus gave his disciples at the very end before he went into heaven. When he told them to go and make disciples, he ends it by saying, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Are we prone, as we are prone to, want, uh, to wonder what is going on or what Je- where Jesus is in the midst of all the chaos of this present world, he graciously draws our attention back here. He is present with us even here this morning. He is present with us in his word, which we have read, which we've sung, which we've recited, and it's being preached. He is present with us in his supper where he feeds us, he nourishes us, and he restores us. He is present with us by his spirit, residing in each and every one who trusts and rests in Christ for salvation. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that we are not alone in this chaotic, dark world. We are not left to bear the light of Christ in our own strength or our own ability. Because Jesus is present with his church. He is in her very midst. But not only is Jesus present with his church, he is also perfecting his church. One of the purpose that Jesus has in residing with us is to purify us. This is the primary emphasis behind what John actually sees. Read it again with me. He sees one like a son of man, starting in verse 12, clothed with a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. It is no wonder that John is overcome with fear by the end of this vision. 
It is a terrifying vision. Jesus is pictured as this warrior-like priest. He is powerful. He is terrifying. He is majestic. He has authority. And before we try to, under, try to understand the vision in the context, we need to understand a little bit of the Old Testament background behind it. This vision that Jesus Christ gives is not something entirely brand new. While it includes elements from other visions like ones in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they cl mirror closest the visions of Daniel in Daniel 7 and 10. In Daniel 7, the prophet is given a glimpse of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man who comes and is presented before him. In that vision, you hear, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel 10, which J.C. just read for us, the prophet again sees a terrifying man with the power to judge. From that vision again, behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel's visions were looking forward to a day when some mysterious and exalted human figure would come and bring an end to all rule and authority. It would be his. He would have an authority unlike any before him, an authority given to him by God the Father, the Ancient of Days. He would be radiant, majestic, holy, powerful, and true. He would judge the entire world in righteousness. And he would reign forever on his throne. We see in Revelation, Jesus is the fulfillment of these two visions in Daniel. There is no way around it. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who has been given the power and the authority of his Father, the Ancient of Days. He is the radiant and majestic judge of all things. But before we move too quickly to that day we must remember the context in which John receives this vision. This terrifying vision of Jesus Christ is not of him sitting on his throne, judging the nations. It is him in the midst of his people. What does this mean? It means that the judgment and dominion of Christ begins in his church. Jesus Christ is in the exalted Son of Man, is in the midst of the lampstands. And what is he doing? He's trimming the wax that starts to overflow. He's refining the oil that's been burning for too long. He's relighting flames that are starting to go out. He's cutting off old wick that's getting in the way. He is at work in them, ensuring them that they are going to bear witness to him. Each detail that we see of Christ reveals some aspect of his perfecting work as priest and judge in the midst of his people. The robe and the sash confirm his priestly function. His white hair, his shining face reflect the purity and his perfect wisdom at work in his church. His flaming eyes are a picture of perfect judgment that see all things, hidden 
and unhidden. His bronze feet are stable. They're prepared for war. The voice that speaks resounds with this authority and this power. And the words that come out of his mouth are powerful. They're able to reward and to punish. And each of these serves to purify, to perfect the church so that she might bear witness to the nations. And it is not a necessarily wonderful process. We don't have the time, but if I can encourage you over the week ahead to read the seven letters in chapters two and three. These provide us with a glimpse of the way Jesus perfects his church. He encourages her, tells her what she's doing that is good, that is helpful, that is true. He warns her, stray from the path, and this is what will happen. He rebukes her, tells her to stop doing what she's doing that is sinful, that is wrong. He promises to reward her for her faithfulness. He even threatens to remove the lampstands of those who are unfaithful. And this is the work that he continues in the midst of his church today. So just as we are encouraged by the fact that Christ is present with us, and we should be, we must also be confronted by the fact that this Christ is present with us. As we hear his word, we should be eager to repent and to change in light of it by the power of his spirit. So are we listening as his word is preached, as it is taught? It is a privilege to be Christ's light bearers until he comes. And it is not a task we should take lightly. Christ is in the midst of us, trimming us, perfecting us so that we may accomplish his task. An article wrote regarding this passage, when a church stops loving Jesus, harbors sin in its midst, or stops teaching the truth of God's word, it is in danger of losing its status as a keeper of the eternal flame of God's presence. Sadly, we have seen this outcome far too many times to count. But what keeps this from happening, what keeps us faithful, is humble submission to Christ's work, perfecting us, and purifying us. Again, he does it through his word as it is taught. He does it by his spirit as it resides in his people. He does it as we daily remember the one in our midst is the exalted son of man with all power and authority coming to judge the nations. We need his perfecting work. We should be asking for it daily. It will keep us faithful to him until he comes. So may we rejoice not only in his presence among us, but in his perfecting work in us. Jesus is present with and perfecting his church, but Jesus is also, will also prevail through his church. The church will not fail because Jesus already has the victory. John understands what he has seen. He responds in the most appropriate way by falling over like a dead man. It is what Daniel did in response to the vision given to him. The weight of the majesty and the glory and the power of Christ is too much for him to bear. This glimpse of Christ that John has given is unlike anything he has seen, even as he walked with Jesus for those 15, three, three, somewhere between 3 and 15 years. 
And yet Jesus moves toward John with grace and compassion and love. With a touch, he proves the beauty of Isaiah 41, verse 10, where God says to his people, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. John is able to stand because the exalted Christ strengthens him. Christ is not beyond his people. He promises to give them what they need. But greater still, Christ speaks words of comfort, words of life, and words of hope to John. Listen to what he says. Fear not, the end of verse 17. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Simply put, Jesus interprets the vision for John. He fills John in in exactly who he saw. And because of this, there's no reason to fear. No individual, no national power, no ruler or authority can hold a candle to Jesus Christ. Whatever John, whatever the churches, whatever every believer since may experience is not the final word. That belongs to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. In a way, the words of Jesus here mirror what he promised the disciples in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Well, first, because Jesus is the first and the last. He is the sovereign one reigning over all history. The beginning, from eternity past, the middle which we're somewhere in the middle right now, and the end. The vision reveals that Jesus holds the same power and authority as God the Father. If we were to go three times in the book of Isaiah, God declares to his people this truth. In Isaiah 41, in Isaiah 44, and in Isaiah 48, three times he tells them, I am the first and the last. Jesus, along with his Father, is in complete control of all things, in all places, even to the tiniest detail. All of history is working towards its appointed end when all things will be placed under Christ's feet and handed over to the Father. What John endured, what the churches endured, that he wrote to, were all occurring under the sovereign hand of Christ. He was not shocked, he was not surprised. And what we endure, what the church universal endures today, is not any different. Months like the first two of this month are not wrenches messing up God's plan. They have been ordained and known and seen by the one who holds history in the palm of his hand. This is more than enough reason for us not to fear. Our God is the first and the last. But Jesus adds more. He also says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. It is not only that Jesus Christ is sovereign over history, he has conquered every enemy, whether physical or spiritual, even the ultimate enemy of sin and death. He has secured the victory over all by means of his life and death and resurrection. He was the one who suffered as a man living in a sin-cursed world, bent on destroying him. He died having committed no sin, the spotless lamb slain for sinners. 
And he rose again in victory over sin and over death. John's vision is a vision of the resurrected and exalted Christ with all majesty, all power, and all authority. And it is also a glimpse of what Christ will look like when he returns. Presently, Christ stands as the great judge of his church as he works and moves in amongst her. He's purifying her. But when he returns, he will wear this same title, only not simply the great judge of his church, the great and cosmic judge over all things. He will come with the blaze of his holiness. He will bring judgment upon all creation for the sin, the violence, the injustice, the destruction that it has caused. His voice will thunder with authority, unlike any that anyone has ever seen or heard or would wish to see or hear. The sword of his mouth will punish all those who are against him. And every knee, as we confessed earlier, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and will confess that Jesus Christ is king. And again, this is all we need as the church to have our fears driven away. This victory that Christ has, the keys are a picture of that victory he has given to us. We are guaranteed victory, not because of our greatness, but because of his greatness. When the days in this world around us seem to spiral out of control, he is sovereign over it all. He is victorious over it all. He is working all things to its appointed end. And when the days in our individual world seem to spiral out of control, he is still the one who holds the keys to the victory. Suffering, trial, hardship, and sorrow will undoubtedly come. There will be days that seem especially dark and difficult. But the Lord and the shepherd of his church remains sovereign. He still holds the key for our victory because it is his victory that he has purchased for us. May we not fear as we labor on as his light-bearing witnesses in this dark world. The year 2020 has started off with a very chaotic bang. Who knows what the new month will hold in store for us on a global, national, local, or even personal level. Who knows what the nine months after will bring. I have no guarantee that things will turn around. I have no guarantee that things will not continue in a chaotic trajectory. While it would be nice to know some of these things, the truth is that it really doesn't matter. Whether the world at large or our little world swirl into absolute chaos, Jesus Christ will not. He will continue with his church. He will continue as her faithful shepherd, caring for her, leading her, carrying her through the trials and the tribulations that she faces. He will continue his work as her faithful priest, purifying her, sanctifying her to be his witnesses in this dark world. And he will continue as her risen king who reigns over all things. And he will return to bring her, his bride, to be with him forever. And also to judge sin and Satan and death once and for all. This is enough to strengthen us for all the chaotic days ahead. Sure, we will still wonder at times what is going on. But like John, we need not fear. But worship the one who has purchased us with his blood and will faithfully and triumphantly lead us into his eternal kingdom.
Jesus Christ is with and at work in his church as she waits his glorious return. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this glorious vision that you gave John and you give us of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that he is in our midst, that he is present with us, near with us, comforting us. God, that he is perfecting us, enabling us to bear the light of his glory to the nations. And God, we thank you that his victory is our victory. May you drive out fears that instill us, that would captivate us. Would we lean on you as a church to do the work that you have begun in us until the day that you come. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would come quickly. That you would put all things right, make all things new by the power that you have been given by your Father. Be glorified in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.